At the time of Ulysses S. Grant's death in 1885, he was the most popular man in America and was seen by many as the savior of the Union, not only for his military achievements during the Civil War, but for his leadership as president during the turbulent years of Reconstruction. In the years to come, however, Southern Lost Cause writers and popular historians advanced several stereotypes that have come to define Grant. In the eyes of many, Grant became the butcher general, the drunken fool, and the corrupt president. Fortunately, in the last 20 to 30 years, historical works have taken a closer look at Grant's life, and just as importantly, have examined the historiography that has painted his legacy. In this special two-part episode of the Capital District Civil War Roundtable podcast, hosted by me, Nick Tony, I talked to Joan Wong, Daniel T. Davis, Gary Gallagher, Chris Mikowski, and Paul Cahan. All of these accomplished historians have done substantial work on Grant's life, distinguishing the difference between history and memory, while recognizing the importance of understanding both. In weaving their interviews together, I hope to present a compelling portrait of Grant's military and political life, combined with commentary on the evolution of Grant's legacy. Grant came from humble origins, born the son of a tanner and merchant in Point Pleasant, Ohio. As a boy, he was self-effacing and established a reputation as a lover of horses. As biographer Ronald White wrote, his method was not to strong-arm these fractious horses, but to gentle them. In 1839, Grant's father made arrangements for his 17-year-old son to attend West Point against the teenager's wishes. Grant finished in the middle of his class, hardly distinguishing himself from any of the other cadets. Joan Waugh, the author of U.S. Grant, American Hero, American Myth, on how previous historians covered Grant's early life. It comes down to historians looking at it as a question of character and trying to figure out this this person who seemed to have no real talent or intelligence, how he rose so quickly and how he became such an important figure in the Civil War period. And I think that was the, the uh, sort of like a mystery to many historians. And one that I could mention right away would be William McFeely. He really, he really consolidated a lot of, in his, his uh, in the early 1980s, he published his big biography, Grant, which kind of Pulitzer surprise. And, and his, his main take of those years is that Grant was a failure. And I think that kind of consolidated a lot of the previous interpretation of the 20th century. But he was a failure at Nomad. He, he was a failure as a boy. He was a failure as, as a young man. He became an alcoholic. And he failed in the Army. He failed as a farmer. He failed as a salesman in St. Louis. And he was a failure at the eve of the war. Um, when, when uh, uh, he returned to work in his father's business, returned to his family, so to speak, in Gal- and his father's business in Galena, Illinois, where he basically was a clerk working there. And we see him uh, portrayed in those terms, and it makes what happened afterwards dramatic. And Mc- William McFeely and others have described his, his incredible rise through the ranks as kind of, again, uh, a mystery that, that somehow, somehow this nothing, this failure, this just incredibly 
mediocre person in every way, rose to the top to be the commanding general during the Civil War, and then a two-term president. And William McFeely, again, in his, what is really a masterful book in many ways, tries to answer that question all along the way. And what he says, what he argues, is that Grant was really, uh, really had nothing else to do. He, he was, he, this war was his destiny. That he just, he just didn't really have any reason for it, any intellectual reason, any passion. He just was, was good at this particular. There was nothing else to do, so he won battles, so to speak. It's more, much more complicated than that. But he portrayed Grant as kind of a, uh, a fool. And it, it, it's, it was um, interesting to read that book when I began my study of Grant because it really explains so much to me of what kind of literature came before and the kind of literature about Grant that came afterwards. And that's what prompted my, my interest in, in writing a book on uh, Grant and memorialization and the memory, uh, memory traditions that, um, of the Civil War in general and, and particularly how Grant appeared in memorialization, and when I began doing my research in uh, in archives and newspaper files at, at uh, various uh, places in Washington D.C. and New York City and other places, visiting the sites and visiting all the monuments to Grant, I began to I, I felt increasingly there was this vast disjunction between what historians were writing about Grant. A simple butcher, a, a, corrupt, a butcher general, corrupt president, and what I was encountering in 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 popular history and in, in the social history and all the archives and all the historical sites, suggesting something very profound, something very different, and and I think that that newer generations, generation of historians, and I would. I would say there have always been historians who have written favorably of Grant, and that in, and they include Bruce Catton, for example. I don't think people read him anymore, but he's just one of the best historians of, uh, of the Civil War. Uh, his books are classics, and his book on uh, his volumes on Grant are classic. Uh, J.F.C. Fuller, a British military historian. I'm just giving some examples here. And and uh, but but the uh, the the work that's come, I would say, beginning in the nineteen late nineteen eighties uh, through the nineteen nineties, especially with Brooke Simpson's work on Grant, have have really complicated the depiction of Grant, and I think in general have have um, really. Uh, uh, begun a revival of interest in him, not to make him a hero, but to uh, restore his importance, his vital position in this period. I mean, it's a pretty extraordinary life. Uh, what Whitman said of Grant, what a man, what a history. And you really, you really are amazed at the, the, the period of his dominance 
from 1862 to his death in, in the American imagination, I think, and, and also his, his record of achievement, as well as, of course, his, his mistakes and, and um, the cost of the war and the things he didn't do as president that we today wish that he did do. But but it, it but it becomes a much more the, the one of my problems in teaching 19th century history to UCLA students or or giving talks to public audiences and writing is the coming up against this preference for stereotypes in history. In other words, it's much easier to understand history if you accept a prevailing view that's very powerful and very persuasive. Grant as a butcher general, Grant as a corrupt president, the Gilded Age is corrupt. You don't have to know anything else. That's You can move on. And that, I think, is the task of historians to make people interested in, in the past in a way that allows you to in, enjoy and engage with the terrific complexity that that perhaps presents people and events in a different light, but it but at the end of the day, it makes you understand what happened and what what perhaps makes you understand your own country in in 2020 a little bit better. In life and death. Grant's reputation as a drunk was pervasive. Stories of Grant's issues with drinking dated back to his time in the Army after the Mexican-American War. It's been a huge factor. It's one of those things that you, you that um, refer to a stereotype of Grant the drunk and, and assume that he was drunk throughout the war and was drunk as president. And that, that is not true. It's documented not true. Historians have gone back in the 20th and 21st century, and they have they have uh, examined uh, particularly this is uh, particularly true of Brooke Simpson. Examine every instance of 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 uh, the supposed drunken escapades that Grant indulged in, and the the uh, but if we can, if you want to go back to when did he start drinking? It appears that he. He, uh, he, he wasn't, it wasn't a problem for him uh, until he entered the, the peacetime military. That is to say, after West Point, after the Mexican War, Mexican War he certainly, uh, one thing historians have nailed is that he, he was not uh, a drinker in front of his family, in front of Julia. In fact, when Julia was there, he... he um, um, he notably refrained from any kind of alcohol consumption, but it is true that that when he was in the post-war army, when he was in stationed on the far west coast in California and and Washington Territory, he he did. Uh, there's no doubt that he did engage in alcohol consumption. That prompted this reputation that he has. I mean, there's a, there, there aren't as many uh, documents about 
this time that that we could really nail it down, but it seems to be the case. And he certainly had some kind of crisis um, after when he was in the post-war uh, army, when he was away from his family for so long, and that is why he resigned from the army. And that resignation had came with the the rumors that he resigned because he could no longer function as a soldier. So that is, but historians have to, and the good ones, I mean, there are two new biographies that I can recommend that I liked a lot. Ronald White's biography, I think it was published in 2016, and Ron, Ron Cherno's biography. And, and both of them, both of them cover the same story, but in very different ways. What I like about Ron White's biography is he emphasizes, he investigates. Ron is, is started his career as a historian of religion, and he was very interested in exploring Grant's spiritual world, including his upbringing as a Methodist. And he does a very good job of that. And he also uncovered, I think, and uh, the Grant reader, Grant, the person who was familiar with the intellectual currents of his time in many ways, where he, uh, where sort of reversing the idea that Grant, uh, that Grant didn't know anything about literature. He wasn't, he wasn't conversant with uh, the intellectual world. And, and that's, that was simply not true. He just didn't have, um, he just didn't talk about it a lot. And, and well, Ron Cherno really investigates every single instance of Grant's drinking. Many of many of them, uh, because it it presents um, his his psychological analysis of Grant the alcoholic. He he writes that Grant is an alcoholic, but that he can that he he controlled it most of the time and. His his uh, Cherno, uh, his ultimate judgment is that it is it is to Grant's great credit that as a ma- that he was uh, he did not drink very much, and and that because he he, he had some physical condition that historians have known about for a long time that he would get drunk on one one glass of whiskey his favorite brew but. Uh, that, that we should admire him, uh, Cherno says, we should admire him because he, he not only controlled it, but it seemed that certainly by the time he came to Washington, D.C., uh, as, uh, uh, in Johnson's administration as the commander-in-chief of, recon- of military reconstruction, that he ha- had not, that he did not imbibe and 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 neither this wouldn't be the case during his presidency, and and that is the judgment. And again, it is helpful for for readers uh, interested in Grant's life to know that Grant was not the only figure in the military or in 19th century society to drink. The drinking was common. The, the military culture encouraged drinking. It still does. Grant's rise in the military at the beginning of the Civil War was remarkable. His successes in the West were stunning, 
and caught the eye of President Abraham Lincoln, who was desperately in need of an aggressive commander who could win battles. Daniel T. Davis, the author of Vicksburg, The Victory That Unleashed Ulysses S. Grant, and Hurricane from the Heavens, The Battle of Cold Harbor, May 26 to June 5, 1864, on Grant's ascendance. Grant starts out as a regimental commander at the very lowest of levels. He's a West Point graduate and is a veteran of the Mexican War, but uh, peacetime, uh, it doesn't really suit him. He has issues in the uh, post-Mexican War Army. And uh, he uh, goes into civilian life, but comes back as the uh, into the army after the war breaks out. And he eventually uh, scores the North's first great victory uh, of the uh, conflict when he captures Forts Henry and Donelson in uh, West Tennessee. He completely blows open uh, the Confederacy's western door, and I, I can't underscore that enough. Uh, when he captures those two forts and they, those two forts fall to Grant, uh, it gives the Union uh, Navy and Union land forces as well access to the Tennessee and Cumberland River. So it becomes a, a, a point where in January 1862, uh, the deep south, if you will, will, Mississippi and Alabama are completely cut off from the uh, federal forces. When Grant takes Henry and Donaldson, those two rivers open up uh, as avenues of advance, and all of a sudden you have Union warships going up the Tennessee, penetrating through Tennessee into Alabama and parts of Mississippi. So it's a great, it's rather, it's rather meteoric rise. Grant's victories, however, were not welcomed by everyone. His aggressiveness and rumors of his drinking ruffled the feathers of Union General Henry Halleck. Direct Superior Henry Halleck is uh, not as aggressive as Grant. He's uh, very much uh, by the book. He's known as old brains uh, throughout the U.S. Army. He's very by the book. Uh, he's very meticulous. He's going to do things uh, as he was trained, the West Point way, as, as he was trained at West Point. And Grant all of a sudden uh, bursts onto the scene. And it, this uh, 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 Grant's aggressiveness really, uh, it, it doesn't fit Halleck's personality. It's sort of a clash of personalities where uh, Grant is uh, out there w uh, on the battlefield willing to take risks, willing to do whatever is needed to achieve victory. Halleck very much is someone who will sit behind the lines and direct uh, his forces like uh, a chess player on a chess board. Very meticulous, very analytical. And it causes issues to the point where Grant is actually recalled from uh, Nashville. Halleck had uh, told Grant not to go to Nashville. Uh, Grant ended up sending reinforcements uh, from Don Carlos Buell's Army of the Ohio to Nashville. It really uh, tweaked Halleck's nose to a certain degree. And Halleck is, he gets to the point where he's so fed up with Grant for seemingly nothing that he's writing to uh, then-General-in-Chief George McClellan uh, and uh, reporting about uh, Grant's, uh, you know, uh, these overly aggressive actions. And uh, McClellan, in fact, tell, uh, directs Halleck to place Grant under arrest if he needs to. Um, but Lincoln, or rather, uh, Grant has a savior in the form of President Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln needed a general who fought and ultimately gave Grant freedom in the Western theater. Uh, when this comes across Lincoln's desk, Lincoln is rather perplexed at the fact that uh, his one general, who is actually out in the field achieving uh, great things, doing great things, and uh, uh, has already has two victory under his belt, is now going to be relieved from command. So uh, he Lincoln pushes back on Halleck, and Halleck backs off. But Halleck is going to get another opportunity to go after Grant again after the Battle of Shiloh. 
uh, the two-day fight along the Tennessee River where uh, Grant is reported to have been drunk. He's uh, purported to have been surprised by Confederates under Albert Sidney Johnson, brings Halleck back onto the scene, and Halleck makes Grant essentially his second-in-command, uh, which is uh, really not a field command. It's really more of a desk job, uh, where Halleck is now directing Grant's army against the Confederate railhead at Corinth, uh, Mississippi, uh, to the point where Grant is, after the capture of Corinth, ready to uh, go home. But Halleck is going to be called to the east, given the title of uh, general-in-chief, which then put, uh, put uh, Grant back into uh, command. And Grant's next objective, then, is going to be the Confederate uh, city of Vicksburg. Both Abraham Lincoln and Confederate President Jefferson Davis knew Vicksburg was immensely important. If Grant could capture the city, the southern and eastern Confederate territory would be cut off from the critical supplies in Arkansas, Texas, and Missouri. High atop the bluffs along the Mississippi River, uh, Lincoln calls it the key to the uh, Confederacy. And Jefferson Davis uh, makes a comment that it is sort of the, it's the nail that holds the two parts of the Confederacy uh, together. Um, and so Grant sets his sights on Vicksburg, and again, it's sort of a sputter and stop. Uh, he he his over he attempts an overland campaign uh, through Mississippi uh, in uh, late in 1862. Ends up having his uh, supply base at Holly Springs, Mississippi, destroyed. Has to pull back and abandon abandon that effort. Uh, he also has to pull back after a couple of efforts. Um, uh, won by uh, one of his chief subordinates, William Tecumseh Sherman, who gets turned back at uh, Chickasaw uh, Bayou or Chickasaw Bluffs. And so Grant decides that he's going to launch a, uh, a, a campaign in which he's going to uh, utilize the Navy, coordinate uh, naval um, operations with his own infantry on the land, something that he had done to a certain degree. Uh, at Fort Henry and Donaldson, and fortunately for Grant, he's got a fantastic uh, a naval counterpart in uh, David Dixon Porter. So Grant, after all these sputters and stops, comes up with a plan for Porter's gunboats to run the Vicksburg batteries and pick his army up uh, below the city of Vicksburg, ferry them across the Mississippi to get on the same side of the river as the city. Uh, Porter uh, Gamble ends up paying off and Grant launches a uh, campaign through uh, Mississippi, eventually uh, surrounding uh, Vicksburg in the middle of May, and that city's going to surrender two months later. Simultaneous Union victories at Gettysburg, Tullahoma, and Vicksburg bolstered northern morale. However, the impressive Vicksburg campaign and Grant's success at Chattanooga several months later set Grant apart. The Vicksburg, Tullahoma, and Gettysburg ultimately happening relatively at the same time. Uh, really, this, this great moment in June, July, August of 1863, that really was three, essentially, you can narrow it down to two months. Uh, the Confederate armies from Mississippi to Pennsylvania have all of a sudden been put on the defensive. Lee has been turned back in Pennsylvania after the Battle of Gettysburg. He's trying to get back to Virginia and get back to the safety of uh, Virginia. William Rosecrans has maneuvered Braxton Bragg out of Tennessee and the Tullahoma campaign uh, has taken near, nearly complete control of Tennessee, uh, essentially without firing uh, a major shot or engaging Bragg in a major battle. And then Vicksburg Falls giving the 
Union complete control of the Mississippi River and splitting the Confederacy into cutting off the Confederacy from the Trans-Mississippi area and from the supplies that they're bringing in from Arkansas and from Texas. And it's the, the Confederacy is, is dealt a huge blow in the summer of 1863. But what Grant's capture of Vicksburg really sets him apart um, to, in the eyes of Abraham Lincoln. Because here is an officer, unlike many of the officers that Lee, or rather the Lincolns had to deal with who have faced Robert E. Lee in Virginia. Here is an officer who, going back for over a year, has given Lincoln nothing but victory after victory, going from Forts Henry and Donelson to uh, hold, the, holding Corinth in the fall of 1863 against the Confederate counteroffensive to uh, finally capturing this uh, great bastion on the Mississippi. It sets Grant apart. Grant is at, Lincoln realizes that Grant is at another level than any of his other commanders. And after the Battle of Chickamauga, when Braxton Bragg pushes R William Rosecrans back to Chattanooga, and Lincoln knows that he has to respond. He has to get help to Chattanooga. He needs to get a new officer in command in Chattanooga. He turns to Grant. While Grant's star was on the rise, Lincoln was increasingly seen as controversial by many loyal citizens in the North. Gary Gallagher, the author of The Union War on Lincoln's Political Difficulties. Well, Lincoln was controversial because for almost half of the Northern, or the, I should say the loyal public, that is the Democrats, he was pursuing a war that they believed had changed the purpose of the conflict from one to restore the union to one to restoring the union, but also embracing emancipation. And the vast majority of Democrats simply wanted nothing to do with emancipation. They weren't willing to fight that kind of war and die in that kind of war for the most part. Uh, a lot of them eventually came on board with emancipation as a tool to achieve union, but he was very controversial for that. And of course, he was also controversial because many Democrats saw him as a president who trampled on civil liberties. And they had a lot of evidence that suggested that was true in terms of how he treated newspaper editors and others who voiced opposition to the war and so forth. So he was a, he, he was a, a, a very divisive figure in some ways in a war where he had to have both Democrats and Republicans on board to suppress the rebellion. It was a very tough balancing act for Lincoln. Grant's string of success in the West convinced Lincoln that he offered the Army of the Potomac the best chance of victory over Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. Grant is Grant's crucial because they he's he's somebody who wins and they but what, there's this pent up hope in the among the loyal citizenry that someone would get in charge of the war in the eastern theater who would really defeat lee and the army in northern virginia it's a measure of how gettysburg didn't loom as large at the time as we think it does now and that a lot of people gettysburg did nothing to tarnish lee's reputation either in the confederacy or in the united states he's still a bugaboo to people in the united states and they want somebody who will beat Lee and not just beat him a little bit, but really smash Lee. And Grant seemed to be the person both to Lincoln and to the northern public who could do that. I mean, he's going to come as general in chief, but Grant was very savvy politically. He didn't want to fight an Overland campaign kind of campaign. He wanted to defeat the Confederacy indirectly, as I'm sure you know, uh, by striking at their logistical support 
in North Carolina and elsewhere, but he understood that politically for Lincoln and the Republicans and the, and the Union war effort, he was going to have to take the field and confront Lee, the, the, the great Union general taking on the great Confederate general. Grant went east, making his headquarters with the Army of the Potomac, and quickly showed Lee he was opposing a different kind of Union general. Grant is going to make his headquarters, though, in the field. He has no, uh, absolutely no patience for politics. He does not want to remain in Washington. He's the aggressive field commander. He's going to go where his men go. He makes his headquarters with George Gordon Meade in the Army of the Potomac, and he faces Robert E. Lee, the vaunted Robert E. Lee, and the Army of Northern Virginia. And, and Grant is going to first meet Lee in the wilderness, a two-day battle. There, both sides are going to suffer a combined 30,000 casualties, killed, wounded, and missing. And uh, to the men of the Army of the Potomac, it seems that uh, just uh, it's just another round out against the Confederates where they've been stopped once again in their tracks by Lee, but they find out that Grant's different. Grant's not phased by the fighting in the wilderness. Grant's been through this before. He had the first day at Shiloh where his men got uh, pushed out of their camps back to all the way back to the uh, Tennessee River, and he's not phased. I think Shiloh is, uh, I think Grant learns from Shiloh and takes that experience with him to Virginia. And that experience is that no matter what happens, no matter what you do to me, if you knock me down to the mat, I'm going to come back in the next round and I'm going to pummel you with everything I have. And that's essentially what he does to Lee. And the wilderness becomes a watershed moment for Grant, for George Meade and the Army of the Potomac. Uh, for the first time after engaging Lee in battle, they do not retreat. Grant decides to turn Lee's right flank, march to a very critical crossroads of Spotsylvania Courthouse, and continue the campaign. It was something that had never been done before in Virginia by a Union army. Grant assures uh, President Lincoln through a reporter traveling with the Army of the Potomac that no matter what happens, there will be no turning back. And Grant stays true to his promise. Many historians consider Grant's decision to move forward after the bloody fighting at the Battle of Wilderness the war's turning point. Chris Mikowski, the author of A Season of Slaughter, The Battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse, May 8th to 21st, 1864, and Grant's Last Battle, the story behind the personal memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant. Really, I think anybody who tells you Gettysburg is the turning point of the war is uh, selling a pretty well-worn version of the Civil War that has uh, been perpetuated based on work by John Batchelder, who was literally trying to make Gettysburg a tourist mecca. And uh, so, you know, he really perpetuated this idea that, that Gettysburg was the turning point. Uh, but I really tend to think that that's kind of balderdash, quite frankly. Um, because for me, the real turning point, if we had to say that there's one, um, and that's even that is sort of an artificial um, construct. But if we had to say there's one, I would say it's the, uh, the, the Battle of the Wilderness. Um, specifically on the uh, 7th of May when Ulysses S. Grant has the choice to either withdraw or continue onward. He continues onward. And uh, that really changes the nature of the entire war because up to that point, the armies would fight and then they would withdraw and they'd spend a couple weeks or a couple months resupplying, re-equipping, uh, reinforcing. And that breather always gave the Confederate armies the chance to catch their breath and, and get back up to strength. 
And Grant realized that this was just a, a matter of numbers, and he just had to exert his numerical superiority over the Confederacy. Uh, and it was grim arithmetic, but uh, he was willing to do it. You know, and that's exactly what Lincoln was looking for. And so at the wilderness, rather than withdraw and give the Army of Northern Virginia the chance to uh, get its feet back underneath it, he just goes around him and he starts fighting the next day at Spotsylvania. And so really uh, what starts in the wilderness opens six weeks of unrelenting combat and contact between those two armies. And nothing like that had happened anywhere in the war before. Um, and so that's really you know, why the wilderness itself is such a such a huge turning point. And after Gettysburg, Robert E. Lee, um, certainly his offensive capability has been diminished. That's as much a result of Chancellorsville as Gettysburg. Um, but he moves throughout Northern Virginia with impunity. You know, the strategic situation doesn't change at all after Gettysburg, um, whereas after the wilderness, the strategic situation uh, has, has significant changes to it. The Battle of Spotsylvania was another bloody clash for Grant's Union forces. Nevertheless, Grant moves forward. Uh, after a 13-day battle at Spotsylvania, the tenacity shows through. Both armies lose at least 30,000 casualties. We don't really have a good sense of how many men uh, both, uh, both armies lost at Spotsylvania, but it's a two-day battle, at least another 30,000 casualties, but Grant keeps on going. He tells his subordinates in Washington that he's going to fight it out on this line if it takes all summer. He decides to turn Lee's flank again, march for the North Anna River. Another two-day engagement, uh, not as many casualties, but Grant gets stymied again. In fact, he walks into a trap that Lee has laid for them, for uh, him and the Army of the Potomac. Lee has pulled his men back from the North Anna and formed them on, uh, uh, formed them into an inverted V with the tip of the V, a sort of an upside-down V on the North Anna River, separating uh, parts of the Army of the Potomac or two wings of the Army of the Potomac. But Grant's able to get away, and he decides to maneuver once again around Lee's right flank, which ultimately, in the, uh, the early part of June, puts the armies facing each other uh, just some eight miles away from Richmond at Cold Harbor. In his memoirs, Grant famously admitted that he wished he hadn't ordered the last attack at Cold Harbor. For years, Grant critics pointed to this battle as proof that the Union general was a butcher. Cold Harbor is a, it's sort of the lens I think people have grown to, as you mentioned, have grown to view Grant in, and that is the early morning assault of June 3rd, 1864, where Grant decides that he's going to launch an army-wide attack and up and down Lee's entire line. Um, and the attack ultimately fails. Some Union units, the 2nd Corps under Winfield Hancock, uh, the 18th Corps under uh, Baldy Smith go forward. They end up sustaining rather high casualties. Other units in the 6th Corps under Horatio Wright do not actually go forward. They, by this point in time in the campaign, they recognize that it's uh, incredibly difficult to... Uh, launch a successful attack and successfully uh, carry or capture Confederate uh, field fortifications. And Grant will famously write in his memoirs, bearing in mind that he's writing this just days before his own passing, that he always regretted that the last assault at Cold Harbor failed. And I think that is in part, I think that's Grant saying that he regretted that the attack was not successful and what i mean by that is that grant had by that point in time in the campaign had maneuvered lee 
from the wilderness to a point only eight miles from Richmond. Lee's back was to the Chickahominy River, and behind him was his capital. If Grant could have broken through somewhere, in fact, he does break through. There is a, a, a breach in the Confederate lines uh, along the southern portion of the Confederate lines, Lee's right flank that is eventually uh, plugged by uh, nearby reserve troops. But if Grant had been able to punch through Lee's lines and get to the Chickahominy River, he could have been in a, in a very critical spot strategically and tactically uh, against the Confederates where he could have potentially moved into and captured Richmond itself. Grant had smashed Lee over and over again during the Overland Campaign, getting to within miles of Richmond and forcing the Confederate general to fight defensively. Yet the moniker Grant the Butcher would persist from the Overland Campaign on. When he comes east, that comes out of the Overland Campaign, and it's ironic. The northern public wanted Grant to smash Lee. When he starts smashing Lee, just what they wanted him to do, <laughs> the casualties became so huge that they began to think the war wasn't worth it. There's real irony. There's irony in all directions in the Civil War, but there's a nice piece of it right there. He becomes a butcher to part of the, especially the extreme conservative Democratic press, publications like the Old Guard. They start calling him a butcher after Cold Harbor. The Confederates really pick up on that. The Confederate press really calls him a butcher. But that's the turning point in terms of how Grant is perceived, uh, perceived in terms of the level of his casualties. No one calls him a butcher in the spring of 64. By July of 64, there are a lot of people calling him a butcher, a lot of Democrats. And across the Confederacy, that's a drumbeat in the press. The numerical advantage the Union Army possessed has contributed to Grant's reputation as a butcher general and the notion that Union victory was inevitable. It is, it is one of the major uh, contributors to Grant's, Grant's reputation as a butcher. And I, I think that it is, it, while it is true that, that uh, the Northern Army, the United States Army, was, uh, had more men to mobilize than the Southern Army, it's, it's one of those stereotypes that people are comfortable with. It's easy to understand that the, the army with the so-called overwhelming resources and manpower would win and, and that it, it wouldn't be hard to win if you were a general as, what, as Grant was portrayed by the Lost Cause historians, the um, the um, that school of historical interpretation that appeared uh, and flourished really in the the late 19th century, very late when they became prominent, and, and through much of the 20 first half of the 20th century, that that Grant won only because he commanded great numbers of men. That he was that any stupid general, which he was, stupid junk, drunk general, could do this, and the. The truth is, um, right, uh, staring right at people's, um, for people's consideration, the truth is that if that was the case, why did it take so long to win the war at such great cost? And then that would mean that you need to take the next step and consider, um, consider why. And I think that it especially comes to light in Grant's 
uh, record in 1864 in the Overland campaign, and I'm sure uh, I'm sure that will be something that you're you'll be interested in. But that's where he got the reputation, especially when you compare Grant in in the Overland campaign of 1864, which produced immense losses for the Union Army and, of course, for both armies. But because it, it he was pitted against Robert E. Lee became the patron saint of the lost cause and and grant became the butcher but if and historians have done this to to no great effect but they've compared the the losses of grant and lee and and they found that they're there if you want to measure if that's how you want to measure war then they're both butchers I mean that is the point, and and Grant, what did Grant do? Why was he this um, at the beginning of the war? This obscure, disgraced West Point officer who um, who had to work his way up very quickly. It might be said in the Western theater, but still distant. And and when you had the great Eastern generals. For example, McClellan and Ambrose Burnside and George Meade, they were the ones that were going to win the war. Why did Lincoln need to bring Grant? Because, because the war, in fact, uh, was, was difficult in, to win because the, because the uh, numbers didn't, didn't mean what you thought they would mean. Confederates were very successful in prolonging this war. And the victories in the Eastern Theater, the all-important Eastern Theaters, did not happen. In fact, it was stalemate. And when Grant fought Lee, it was to stalemate. But the point is that Grant was the winning general. And he had the qualities and the vision and the, the um, intelligence to persevere, to keep on... To on winning, and that's why he was brought in March 1864 to be the commander of all United States armies. Lincoln was so unsure of Union victory and his own re-election by August of 1864 that he penned a letter, which he had his cabinet members sign without reading. In it, Lincoln wrote, This morning, as for some days past, it seems exceedingly probable that this administration will not be re-elected, that it will be my duty to so cooperate with the president-elect, as to save the union between the election and the inauguration, and he will have secured his election on such ground that he cannot possibly save it afterwards. I think it's hard for Americans especially to get beyond the notion that United States victory was preordained in the Civil War because the union had so much more of everything, so four times as many military-age white men to pull on enormously greater industrial capacity and so forth, a modern-looking emerging capitalist giant versus this kind of backward-looking agrarian slave-holding civilization. That's how we look at it. But in fact, the Confederacy had a perfectly good chance to establish its independence because all it had to do was persuade the mass of the citizenry in the loyal states that the war was simply costing too much. It wasn't worth it. And that's what happened in the summer of 1864. The United States came the closest it came during the entire war to having a majority of the loyal citizenry say that's enough. 
We're not winning the war. We're not capturing Richmond. We're not capturing Atlanta. This war is going to be endless for Democrats. It's a war they didn't really want to fight for emancipation anyway. And, and I think Northern public morale within the context of the entire war reached its low point in July and August of 1864. And thus you get Lincoln writing his blind memorandum for the cabinet. You have uh, a great sense that, that there's a democratic resurgence coming in the fall elections. Uh, and that is based on what's happening on the battlefield. And the Oberlin campaign had a lot to do with that because the losses, even within the context of the Civil War, had become, had reached a level that seemed unendurable to many people in the United States. The Emancipation Proclamation was issued by Abraham Lincoln in 1863, freeing slaves in the rebellious states. It was a military measure designed to weaken the Confederacy. By 1864, Lincoln struggled to boost Northern morale and knew that he must rally the Northern people around one cause, union, not freeing the slaves. I think the conflict's core purpose is to restore the union. That's what it was in 18, and I'm talking about for the, for the large majority of the loyal citizenry. That's what the war is about in 1861. That's what the war is about in 1865. Along the way, I think eventually and somewhat grudgingly, especially on the part of Democrats, they accepted emancipation as one of the tools necessary to achieve union. They never changed their goal, their major goal. The major goal is union. Put the nation back together. Put the, put the handiwork of the founding generation back together. That is what the war was about. And Lincoln's last message, annual message to Congress, says it very clearly in December 64. That's after he'd been reelected. That's after the Republicans were going to have huge uh, majorities in both the House and the Senate. He said, this is a rough paraphrase, in a great war such as this, you need to have a common goal. Our common goal is union. He says it very, very specifically. And then he says, we need to ratify, we need to get the 14th uh, the 13th Amendment through the House of Representatives because that'll be one, emancipation will be one of the tools to achieve our goal of union. It's the same way that he cast the Emancipation Proclamation as a military measure that the Northern public could understand. This is something we need to do to defeat the rebels and restore the union. I don't think that ever changed in the course of the war. The overall overarching goal of the war for the white citizenry of the United States, and they're almost all white, 98.8% of them in the free states are white, is to save the Union. Abolitionists played a big role in instigating Southern slaveholders in the lead-up to the Civil War, but remained unpopular in the North. No, and there are almost none of them. I mean, there's this notion that abolitionists were growing hugely as you go through the end. No, they're not. There may be 3% of the white population in the North. Most people loathe them, see them as a threat to the Union because they're so disruptive. They're never that popular. And there's a difference between being anti-slavery in a kind of general sense and being an abolitionist. And a huge difference between saying we need to embrace emancipation to defeat the Confederacy and being an abolitionist. You can say we need to do it to defeat the Confederacy and not care anything about black people. It has nothing to do with black people. It has to do with defeating the Confederacy and saving the Union. I mean, the level of what we would call toxic racism in the, in the mid-19th century, it's pervasive. It just is. We need to take that as a baseline and then talk about something interesting. 
and not trying to pretend and parse it so that they aren't quite as racist about this or that. Most white people didn't care about black people in the mid-19th century. They just didn't. They, uh, we wish they did, but they didn't. Grant's father, Jesse, was an abolitionist and was upset when Grant married into a Missouri slaveholding family. Grant himself held anti-slavery sentiments and often hired free blacks to work on his farm instead of using his father-in-law's slaves. Nevertheless, during the war, Grant perceived emancipation as a military tool. Grant is a good soldier who understands that in the United States system, soldiers execute the policies decided upon by politicians. McClellan didn't really get that. On the Confederate side, Joe Johnston didn't really get it. Lee and Grant get it. And, and Grant got it better than Sherman. Sherman doesn't have black soldiers in his armies in, in Georgia and the Carolinas. He was supposed to, but he didn't. Grant got it. I think Grant came around to a position where he believed slavery had to end. He had a learning curve as well. But what's really going on with Grant is I'm a soldier. I do what my civilian superiors tell me to do in our system of government. Emancipation's on the table. I'm pushing for emancipation. Black soldiers are in the mix. I'm using black soldiers. That's Grant's take on this. Thank you for listening to part one of this special two-part edition of the Capital District Civil War Roundtable podcast. Please subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes, and please visit our website, capitaldistrictcivilwar.org.